You are tuned in to the Jackson Hole Connection, sharing fascinating stories of people connected to Jackson Hole. I am truly grateful for each of you for tuning in today. And support for this podcast comes from Teton County Solid Waste and Recycling, bringing the Jackson Hole community residential and commercial food waste composting options. Call 307-733-7678 for more information. The Jackson Hole Wine Club, making the experience of exploring new wines as easy as taking a sip. Visit jacksonholewineclub.com to sign up today. Reading and learning from others guides me to living the best life that I can. And today, I research the definition of a term which is related to Diane's work and our conversation today. And the word that I'm defining today is neurodiversity. Neurodiversity is defined as the range of differences in individual brain function and behavioral traits regarded as part of normal variation in the human population. Think about that for a moment, just pause and think about that definition. And you are listening to episode 207. And my guest today is Dr. Diane Hudson, the owner and director of Advanced Behavior Change. She's a mom, she's a wife, great individual to know and to connect with. I really don't recall how many years I've known Diane, but I do know I met her before she or I had children, before Diane was married because I attended her wedding. And so I'm gonna throw out there, I've known Diane for 15 years. Diane and her family have recently relocated back to Jackson Hole. And while Diane was away, I followed her work on social media and I share her posts on my social media channels at times. And as a person who struggled as a child, learning, focusing, and even as an adult, I find that my mind easily drifts. I know when I read books, there's times I have to read a page more than once. Yep, I sure do. Even with as much as I read, I still have to make sure that there's no outside noise or I certainly lose focus easily. So I felt with me being able to relate to having challenges learning and thinking and focusing. I felt having Diane as a guest to discuss how our brains work is important. And and it's good for me to hear for um, how my brain works. All of our brains are wired differently and each of our brains are wired in a very complex fashion. Knowing and understanding will help each of us be better friends, better parents, and will help us all communicate with greater compassion. Diane, thank you for joining me today here at the Jackson Hole Connection. And it's wonderful to see you and reconnect with you as well. It's been quite a few years. It has. Yes. Thanks very much, Stefan. I appreciate it. I'm excited to be on and to just be back in the community. Well, the community is very happy that you're back. I enjoy hearing people's background. And I would love for you to start off by sharing where were you born and grew up and 
how did you end up in this place that we call Jackson Hole? Good thing that I actually, I thought that this might be a question. So I wrote down like all the states I've lived in, in com- like in order. So I would not miss anything. So Okay. Are you going to um, sing it like Billy Joel really fast? Like, hmm, no, but that would have been really okay. fun. Yeah. So I am, I'm a youper. I'm from the Upper Peninsula of Michigan. Grew up on Lake Superior and did not at all appreciate the beauty that I was surrounded by while I lived there. Could not wait to leave, in mm-hmm. fact. So yeah, I grew up there. Parents, a sister, some cousins. I went to undergrad there and then I moved to Oregon for graduate school to Eugene, which was where I kind of fell into this area of school psychology and working with people with disabilities. I kind of, I talk about like the fact that I started preschool and I never stopped going to school until I finished graduate school, which if anybody is thinking about that, I don't necessarily recommend it. (laughs) You don't recommend graduate school? Well, I do, but I don't recommend starting when you're three and then going clear until you've finished everything all at once with no breaks. Oh, okay. Recommend. Yeah. Yeah. But it was, you know, kind of like it felt like those were the things that I had to do. And I kind of joke that I, I like to have boxes that I check. Like I have very specific things I like to do and orders of things. And that was sort of the order of things, right? However, it has turned out to offer some really amazing opportunities throughout my career because I did that. And so I wouldn't change it for me. It worked out. And then I Got to live in Seattle for a couple of years, and from there, actually, was my first stint here in Jackson. I had a, a graduate school friend who was working for the school district, and they were hiring school psychologists. And she said, "Hey, do you want to move to Jackson?" And I was like, "Okay." Had no idea what this place was about, like no concept of elevation. I mean, I grew up in the Midwest, right? And then I lived on the West Coast, <laughs> but it was. Again, just like a a huge sort of serendipitous moment of change that I wasn't expecting. And ever since then, I'm my husband and I have we met here and we've moved around a bit for his job, but we've always felt like this place was home, even though neither of us grew up here. (laughs) And so it's really pretty amazing to have kind of this this path that traces across the country a couple of times land us back here at this point. And you and Chad and your daughter just moved back after being away for a few years. Yeah, been away for about 12 years almost. We moved when she was, she was born here. We were living in Alpine at the time. And then we moved a little before she was a year old. So Okay. And share with people now what you are doing for work. So right now what I do is I'm, I have my own company called Advanced Behavior Change And the purpose of it is to help people be able to build their own best lives. So I'm a behavior analyst in addition to being a school psychologist. What I love to do is help people find what really lights them up and gets them excited and figure out how to use that so they can just keep moving forward and meet their goals. So I work a lot, obviously, with people in the disability field. Right now, my focus is coaching parents of autistic and ADHD tweens. So the wonderful age of eight plus, I think I'm going to start calling them middle-aged, middle-aged, what did I write down? Middle-aged teens or something like that. I thought it was funny. 
Anyway, I don't like tween. It's kind of it's kind of a weird term, but it's used a lot. This is kind of like where you I don't know preteen, but that also sounds very formal too. Mm. So anyway, yeah. So that's that's the group I'm t- I'm working with. Those are kids that often get overlooked in terms of support and services. They get a lot of attention and support as they need, you know, as is appropriate when they're younger through our early intervention programs. And then they kind of just like fall off of the service radar simply because there's not a lot in place for them. Mm. And because of that, like I, I love working with kids individually. I've run girls' social skills groups and just regular social skills groups. And I think you would like, you've never had as much fun as when you've had like five off the wall, seven-year-old boys running around your tiny office, like shooting those little rubber band, those little Mm. rubber chickens at the wall, trying to like get as many points as they can. Mm. (laughs) Um, That's pretty fun. (laughs) And it's, it's for kids like that who, you know, they come, they get into school and they, There just aren't a lot of supports. And because of that, I've started to also focus a lot more on helping support parents to support their kids. And that's been really, really fun. Help me break some of that down a (laughs) a little bit, Diane. So I'm following the part about that you work with autistic and, you know, children who are before their teenage years, (laughs) because I'm not going to use the other word. (laughs) And and then you're also helping the parents who have children that are autistic and ADHD. You also mentioned beforehand that you help people build their best lives. Is that all connected or is that something, a, a separate side of your business that you're doing? It is all connected simply because of the approach that I take. So I build on strengths and I really focus on what's important to the individual I'm working with. So whether it's the parents and the values that they really want to have show to have demonstrated in their home, or whether it's like an eight-year-old boy or a nine-year-old girl who's like most important thing today is connecting with their friends on some kind of social media, right? Or some kind of game they're playing. I think it's really important to take those things and, and use them as kind of an impetus. You know, you can expand those. Like, for example, if I have a family and one of their important values is communication, that's huge, right? And so we talk about and identify ways that communication works in their family. And we include everybody in that, not just the parents. And then we identify where it's not working great. And then I help support them in coming up with ways that they can try to improve that, but also giving themselves some grace and some self-compassion around the idea that change is really hard and it doesn't come easily. And I think part of the reason that I really love working with kids who are before their teenage years, as Stephanie Abrams says. Hmm. (laughs) Just because I say it doesn't... (laughs) Make it, you know, written in stone now. <laughs> that's true. That's so. true. But I mean, you know, I, you're the host. So <laughs> it's my but, show. <laughs> yes, yeah, your show. But what it really is, is that things get so much harder for kids in that age group, regardless. And as parents, we tend to second guess a lot of what we're doing. Like we might have like thought we totally nailed like toilet training. Then we're like, what do you do about, you know? 
social interactions and friendships and how do you support that without being too overbearing? And that's hard enough, I think, when your child's brain works the way people expect it to, right? But when you have a neurodivergent brain, and that's kind of the umbrella term for autism, ADHD, obsessive compulsive disorder, and some other things kind of rolled in there. The idea is that their their brain is wired differently to attend to different features of the environment. So some things that stand out to one child may not at all be noticed by another child. Hmm. And because of that, it can make the parenting especially at this age, feel a lot more challenging simply because what you've done in the past or what, or the messages that you get about the parenting that you are, that should be working, don't, they they don't at all. Like a long-term consequence, like for example, if a child does something and the solution that the parent comes up with is to take away their tablet for a few days. A kid with ADHD might be like, oh yeah, that's a big deal. But then like five minutes later, they found something else that is equally fun for them to do. And so that consequence that a parent thinks they're using isn't necessarily as effective in that case. And not because their kid just doesn't care or is like, whatever parents, you know, you do you and I'll do me. It's just a fact of the way that their brain is wired and and helping kids and parents to understand that and use that to their advantage, but also like as a way to plan differently is I think really, it really helps parents feel like they have a better handle on what they're doing. Hmm. So that's kind of how, when I say, you know, living their best life, like it's, it's not necessarily that my values are what other people should be doing, right? Uh Everybody in every family, every person has their own idea about that. And for some families, you know, they're, they just need to be able to be, as parents, confident about those choices and not, and I just hope that parents would be not as worried about what other people think, you know, when they do something differently than their neighbor. Mm-hmm. Hmm. You brought up a lot of big things there. I know. I just start talking and I keep talking. Well, that's what we're doing here is talking. And it's about <laughs> you talking, not me. <laughs> but I have some questions okay. about what you talked about. You mentioned family values, Mm -hmm. and then you also talked about change is hard. And I want to talk about those two items. And then on my mind is, as well, is with autism and the children with ADHD, what is different now about what we're seeing and how kids are growing up, the pressures compared to 40 years ago. Okay. So let's hold that one off. Let's hold off on that one. All right. right. Because I I do want to get into the family values. I appreciate you bringing up family values. Mm -hmm. For families that don't have, say, stated values, Mm -hmm. how can that help a family? But also, what is a recommendation that you suggest to people to practice so they can learn how to create their values. Okay. So for families, you know, like if they don't have them, you know, they don't have a discussion each day about our values are, you know, X, Y, and Z. If you sit back and kind of look at where, where are the places that we like to spend our time? Who do we like to hang out with? What makes us feel good? 
those are indicators of values. So if you like large family gatherings, then maybe family is important to you. If you and your family or you as an individual are out hiking and biking every day, maybe the outdoors and nature or some amount of solitude is important to you. By knowing that, those become really powerful. In the world of applied behavior analysis, we talk about things that are motivating. Well, we talk about that in other worlds too, but <laughs> it's kind of a, it's definitely a, a big piece of how we help people learn. And particularly for kids who are a little bit older, you know, like when kids are littler, you can do things like sticker charts and, you know, reward with toys and that works. But as kids get older, it's not that anymore. You know, it's their values become more of a part of what makes them want to do something. So if my value of being in the outdoors means that I could get out and perhaps meet more people, and that would be a little uncomfortable for me, but I'd be willing to try it because I also like being outside and these people do too, then that opens a door for me as a provider to help somebody see that you could do this you could expand this a little bit more and you could have more fun. You could, you could get to more different experiences that maybe you haven't had. And it kind of opens you up a little bit more. So the way that I use values is, is just that way in my work. Like I, as we identify what people like to spend their time doing and we give that a name, then we say, well, how else can we incorporate that? So if I can just give an, an example of someone that I've worked with, maybe that might. So I have a client and he has a very small, limited number of things that he likes to do. And so his mom would like for him to be able to have more opportunities to, because more opportunities means he gets to engage with the family more, which he likes. And he also could do more things on his own. He really likes things that roll, things that fall. He likes the visual of it and the sound of it. And he likes water. So we kind of turned those general likes, those general motivators, those general, um, in this case, you know, they're not necessarily values, but we're tying them to values. And then we started incorporating a lot of different types of water play. Like we tried, oh, water balloons were a big hit, huge hit water balloons off the like balcony onto the ground. Yeah. Yeah. Right. But it was something that he hadn't been exposed to before. And by doing that, he then was able to, it increased his communication with family members. He would get to go to the store and help pick out some water stuff they were going to be doing. And it became an event that they incorporated into their family, into their family time. So it was this tiny little nugget of something he was kind of interested in, but we were able to expand it and really build not just skills for him, but in walking through that, it was an example for his family on how to take something small and turn it into something a little different, a little bit bigger, maybe a little bit uncomfortable, but he had all the supports in place to be willing to do it. Hmm. And so that's the other part of what I like to do when I'm working with parents is I'll walk them through these initial steps of changing, you know, changing some of these behaviors or things that are happening, but then also give them it, it sets the stage for them to do that in the future on their own. And they've totally done it. Like they've got new places they're driving in the car. They've got new different stores they're going to. And it's just really cool 
because my goal is that I wouldn't, I don't have to hang. I don't want to, I don't want them to have to hang out with me forever. You know, I want mm-hmm. them to be able to kick me to the curb. So, mm-hmm. yeah, that's, that's beautiful. And I'm going to throw this out there that whether a family has a child with ADHD or autism, you call it neurodivergent brain, <laughs> that a family going through the exercise of setting their values could help overall in the family communication and family dynamics and health. A hundred percent. Yep. I don't know of any of my friends. I mean, this hasn't come up in conversation right? of them going through an exercise of stating what the family values are. Right. Most people don't. Yeah. And the reason that I really have my clients do it as a parent, you have so many things that you're thinking about that you're trying to help support your kid with and your home and your job and your friends and your extended family Mm -hmm. and yourself. And that all of those directions, obviously, you know, are pulling at the same time. And when you can go back and say, wait a minute, in our family, we were really going to try to focus on being better listeners. So what does that mean when I'm talking to my child? What does that look like when I am at work? And so it begins to just sort of allow you to feel like instead of being pulled in a lot of directions, those opportunities are ways for you to practice what's important to you. I'm making a note because you talked about listening. and I'm just thinking of my experience with William last night, my six-year-old and like, William, can you listen to me? Yes, I'm listening. Like, can you look at me? So I know you're listening. So I'm just thinking of, well, we need to go through the exercise of what does it mean to each person that we know that you're listening? So if he wants me to listen to him, if he has something to tell me, what should, how can he tell that I'm listening to him? Mm -hmm. And then on the flip side is if I want to talk to him, what does he need to do? So I know that he's listening to me. Right. Yeah. And considering the fact that not everybody listens in the same way or has a conversation in the same way. And sometimes what some people's expectations are might make someone else really uncomfortable. That's really common with autistic people. Their eye contact is not a comfortable way to interact. And so what looks to the rest of us like, oh, someone's not listening is maybe and most likely not true. I've been surprised at all the things that my clients have heard and been absorbing as it looks like they're not quote unquote listening because they're not, you know, looking at the eyeballs, Hmm. which is weird to do anyway, if you think about it. (laughs) So it can feel real uncomfortable, just not necessarily staring, but having face-to-face, eyeball-to-eyeball contact for any extended period of time, yeah, it can feel uncomfortable. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, in the same way that I told you that when I'm talking and we're on this, we're on this Zoom session, I'm probably going to be looking, and you've seen me do it already, right? Like I'm looking all around and, you know, that's how I'm more comfortable having a conversation. So. Mm-hmm. You stated some conversation ground rules and I was telling you, that you'll see me looking down. I'm not distracted from our conversation. I'm taking notes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Amazing what communication does. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yep. You also spoke about change yeah. and 
change is hard. Mm-hmm. I heard somebody speak once before, and and this was in regards to business, not necessarily life, but I'm sure. I, I'd be interested to hear what you say about change. But they said, same thing, change is hard. You have to mourn what is changing, what is what you're giving up, what you're losing. Mourn it, go through the mourning process. So share with us, why is change hard? And what can people do to help with change? It's just so hard because you don't know what's going to happen on the other side of it. Mm. You know, like you, you have this expectation and familiarity with things being the same and looking the same and sounding the same and you doing the same things. Like if I do X, this person is going to do Y and it's going to happen and I know it. But when you change that, that throws everything into, I mean, just like all up in the air, you know, like. Who knows how this is going to shake out? And our brains are wired to want to know what's going to happen, right? And to protect ourselves. And so those routines and those things that we used to do kind of become protection mechanisms. It's where we as humans in the grand course of evolution feel most comfortable. And so when you begin to introduce change and you're looking at what can I do that's going to feel the least scary, the least uncomfortable. You know, I guess the two options are rip off the bandaid or go in, you know, a little bit more slowly kind of step by step. What we know from a behavioral perspective is that if you can introduce change a little bit more slowly and take it in bits and chunks, you're going to, with some exceptions, I'll always have to say with some exceptions because I've got a few rolling around in my head right now. You're going to get a lot more success long-term than if you just say, okay, family, today we are never going to yell at each other again. Well, that's a really amazing goal. I don't know that it's a realistic goal, but if you come at that goal of perhaps it's using a neutral tone of voice when you're upset, Right. So then you talk about, you can practice what that looks like. You can define, like you said, what does it look like for you? If it's neutral, what does it sound like by taking those smaller steps and then setting a goal? So, all right, for today, I, our goal is that we're going to use a neutral tone of voice, you know, maybe after dinner is when things get a little dicey, right? So we're going to focus on neutral tone of voice after dinner. And then set some, again, expectations around that. So what does it look like? What does it sound like? And then how do you go back and and decide if you met that? Instead of just saying all day long, we're all going to be super kind and, you know, never raise our voices. That just kind of sets you up. Mm. Yeah. So taking change, approaching it thoughtfully, aligning it to your values and taking those small chunks is what is going to last longer. And that's something that I think a lot of parents of autistic kids and kids with ADHD know in their hearts. They understand that that takes time. And also, man, in the moment, they just wish things could be better right then and there. And so that's something that I work on a lot with parents too, is their mindset and what they're bringing to the table. You know, how, what was your experience when you were growing up and how does that impact what you say to your kids and what your expectations are. Because the reality is parenting is a long haul, right? And if you have a kid 
who's neurodivergent, if you have a kid with a different type of disability, it's probably a longer haul. And how do you as a parent get yourself in that mindset of being able to show up the best you can and give yourself grace if you don't, because that's true too. Yeah. Give yourself grace. Mm -hmm. And also probably give the kids a little grace too. They could use them sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. That's that's beautiful. Thank you, Diane. You're welcome. I want to talk about what's different nowadays with kids. The Jackson Hole Historical Society and Museum, where we envision a community brought together, enriched, and strengthened by connections to the history and legacy of Jackson Hole. Currently featuring a special exhibit pioneer photographer, William Henry Jackson, presented with the National Park Service. Visit us at 225 North Cash Street in Jackson to see reproductions of some of the first photos of Yellowstone and the Grand Tetons taken 150 years ago. Learn more online at jacksonholehistory.org. It's growing up and, and then you throw in ADHD and autism into that. We got to take a break. Teton County Solid Waste and Recycling estimates that approximately 3,954 tons of food waste are disposed in the trash right here in Teton County every year. This makes food waste the next frontier material in the quest to achieve our county's goal to reduce waste and recycle more, which will help us aim for zero waste. For more information on Teton County Integrated Solid Waste and Recycling's Curb to Compost Commercial Food Waste Program, visit tetoncountywy.gov slash recycle and join today. From Get a word from one of our sponsors and then we'll be right back. Diane, welcome back to this conversation about family and the work you do to help people live their best lives. And we were just talking about change and giving people a little grace. Parents can give their children grace. Children can give the parents grace. And you specialize in working with, with young children, young adults, young people. They might have ADHD. They might be autistic, but you're not just working with a kids you're working with the family the parents mm -hmm. 40 years ago let's use that number 50 years ago were there as many case diagnosed cases of adhd and autism as there are now what's what's different i think the difference is that now there's a name for these things and a name that's more commonly known and understood. Like if you think back to when you were in elementary school, there were definitely, I would, I would imagine you could remember, you know, a kid or two who, you know, was always kind of like merchant to their own drummer and had their own different ideas and wasn't really ever quite on board with the regiment of the classroom. And back when I was a kid, that was just kind of like, you know, that was just how they were, you know, it was like no big deal. Nobody talked about it. It wasn't really a thing. Whereas now I, so I 
was trained as a special educator and a school psychologist. So I have a background in education. And at this point in history, I guess we could say that, um, as we're more aware of the way the brain works and different needs that kids have, we can make accommodations for those things. But in the past, historically, the rule was like, if I'm thinking about some of the teachers I had, right? My way or the highway. So you either fit into this box and you excel in this classroom or you don't and, you know, whatever, no big deal, but we're not going to change a whole lot to try to help you fit in. And so I do think that that's a difference now. So there's not necessarily a greater number of kids. There's more of an awareness of the fact that these differences exist. And we can also adjust our expectations in the classroom or in the home to help those kids be more successful rather than forcing them, everybody to look, be, and sound the same. I mean, everybody's not the same. I know, right? Mm -hmm. Mm. There's a name for it. I, I, I do remember growing up that there was always somebody in the classroom, one or two. And yeah. It's so what about now are those are the children with this diagnosis in the classroom with the kids that don't have the diagnosis or are they being placed in different classrooms? That's a whole mixed bag. It really depends on a lot of factors. There is a lot more of an emphasis on integration and having an inclusion. So we used to call it kind of the big eye and the little eye, right? Like inclusion with a big eye and inclusion with a little eye, depending on how much you were really making accommodations so that that child could participate in the classroom or on the field trip or in the assembly. So there's definitely more of, even compared to when I started in education 20 years ago, you see a lot more of kids with varying disabilities being in class with their neurotypical or typically developing peers and having that be more of an expectation. It doesn't happen everywhere. And in my opinion, we could be doing it more and we could be doing it better. But yeah, it's, it's an improvement for sure. In the classroom, what's something that you feel that could change that could make a, just a small little difference? For how the approach is for when a child's misbehaving in class or not behaving according to what the expected standards are. They might not be misbehaving. Right. Yeah. They, their behavior might be just who they are. Yeah. In this case, what I'm mostly thinking about is elementary school. And I'm thinking particularly about a couple of kids that I worked with in this past year. And what they needed, which in the end was kind of what everybody needs, is sometimes a little bit more time to really understand the question or the direction being asked. And in the classrooms that I've been in, I've seen that this, again, has Im improved greatly. And sometimes there still are times when, you know, you have a schedule that you have to, that you have to follow. But there are some kids that no matter how hard you try to get them to follow that schedule, they'll always have a couple more things that they're kind of thinking about in their head before they get to putting away their stuff or before they get to, you know, lining up at the door or whatever. And 
in, and giving them enough of a, a space where they can feel comfortable that they might need a little bit more time and they can take a little bit more time really goes a long way in helping them in the long run get into that routine of the classroom. It is a tricky and sometimes frustrating place to be as a teacher in the classroom because you're like, oh, this is actually taking longer than I needed to. And if I had just, you know, but if your goal is to create a community or an environment, you know, where everybody feels comfortable learning and being able to, which I know is every teacher's goal, um, mm. everybody has, you know, their own way of going about it. And you can grant that little bit of extra time. That's amazing. That really makes for a different tone in a classroom environment. Yeah. Ooh, you're laying down some heavy stuff today, Diane. It's just a regular day for me, Stefan. Is it? <laughs> and how much of this work are you doing virtually? And does that, does that change how some children you're able to interact with? Mm-hmm. Yeah. It sure does. Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. So I had a client, a boy I was working with in person in Salt Lake, actually, before we moved here. And um, I actually just saw him virtually yesterday, but he's younger. So we did a half an hour session and it it is different. I find that there are some kids that respond better to virtual than others. One thing that's cool, though, when I'm working with families about virtual sessions is that I can be more of a fly on the wall. Like I can see and hear what's going on in the environment that maybe might, you know, when you're there in person, maybe people kind of keep to themselves a little bit more. So I love working in person though. I really am excited to get involved here and meet some families and, you know, other community members too, who are working with families because it's really, it's really pretty fun. Virtual has had its advantages. It does allow me to keep working with some of my clients in Utah, which I'm really excited about. And also they're kind of fun to see people in person too. Yeah. Being in person is, is nice. It's, I think it's way better than virtual, but virtual does have its purposes and its use. One final question that I'm curious if you could help with. I hear a lot about ADHD on, and this is more on the adult side. And granted, they were kids once. They said, you know, I just got pushed through school. I don't read. I don't like to read. And it's like, it's like, gosh darn it, they're not going to do anything to start reading. And then somebody said to me, but if somebody reads to me, I get it. I'm like, well, listen to books that are available on audio. There's so many free resources. But if somebody is saying, gosh darn it, I don't read, what can somebody do to help them be able to appreciate the the act of reading because it can, it does so much for people. Mm, yeah. Um, it plus, yeah. Yeah. It totally does. If you've had good experiences with it, mm. if all of your experiences with reading, were you struggling, not being able to attend, getting a lot of corrections, being in like the bluebird group versus the, you know, Robin group or whatever, however that all went down in elementary school, that can really impact how you feel about stuff as an adult. Mm. And so in those cases, you know, for those people, I definitely find that 
conversation is really fun. Podcasts, super amazing. If you're talking about like a, you know, if there were a kid like in middle school who wasn't too into reading, like graphic novels have been an amazing like transition from, you know, for that group of people who aren't, of kids who aren't super into it. But Define what a graphic novel is. Oh, so that's where like you, well, like comic books are kind of like the original, right? Okay. All right. And, but graphic novel, like a lot of stories, like novels or young adult fiction have been turned into graphic novels. So they look more like comic books, but they have the same story. Mm, okay. Yeah. There is even, if you're interested, one of Anne of Green Gables. Of what again? Uh, Anne of Green Gables, you know, Anne with an E. Anne of Green Gables. Yeah. So even something like that has been turned into a graphic novel because there's a group of kids who are like, my reading experience was terrible. My my learning to read experience, excuse me. And so people do that. And for adults, like like I said, podcasts are an awesome way to get information and just hear stories and stuff. But it might be that that act of reading just is so tied in with those like, really, really significant, you know, big feeling memories and experiences that they're like, no, thank you. I am mm -hmm. not going to do that again. Well, I do need to ask, what is Anne of Green Gables? Stephen Abrams, Anne of Green Gables, you know, the stories about Anne of Green Gables. She was always on like PBS and now she's on Netflix with Anne with an E. I don't know it. I'm looking, I'm gonna write it down and I'll look it up with Lewis okay. and I'll look it up or, or William will look that up. Anne of Green okay. Gables. Yes. Yeah. Well, yeah. And I just use that as an example because that's one that we've had in our home, but mm -hmm. you know, you can find so much literature that's been, you know, turned into these graphic novels to engage a group of readers that otherwise might be totally lost and not lost to the art of reading and the joy of it. I was a terrible English student okay. and I would not have been classified as a reader. I I was not the child that would have had a book around them, mm -hmm. even a comic book. I just didn't do it. Mm -hmm. But as an adult, I've grown to find the books that interest me. I think even today, if I were, but well, one, because I had a terrible experience with it, The Grapes of Wrath. If I had to read that, it would still fly over my head. Mm -hmm. I can tell you about the storyline, mm -hmm. but if you want to talk about the symbolism of the turtle crossing the street, yeah. not going to happen. Yeah, no, me either. No My way. brain just doesn't work that way at all. Mm -hmm. I've enjoyed reading some of those young adult, young teen books, mm -hmm. the Rick, Rick Riordan books with Percy Jackson. Lewis and I read those together. And mm -hmm. when, Harry Potter came out and I grabbed one in the airport and it had been out for years. And I told my mom that I read it and I was enjoying it. Mm -hmm. She bought me all the other Harry Potter. Books. <laughs> She's like, you're reading? Right. What? <laughs> and this is an, as an adult, she mm -hmm. went <laughs> and she did. She got me all the other books. Mm -hmm. So there's something out there for us all one way or another audio podcasts, mm -hmm. like you said. Yeah. Diane, this conversation has been so informative and and heartwarming too, to know that there are people like yourself 
who have dedicated your career to help these children live the best lives that they can be. They are individuals and should have all of the opportunities that they can be contributing citizens and live a happy life. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And, and thank you for, for being one of those individuals who's going to help these children and, and help the parents live a happy life too. So they can really appreciate the love and kindness that those children have and can bring to their lives. Yep. It's my pleasure. It's not all peaches and roses as someone in my house likes to talk about, but you know, there's definitely some good stuff underneath there. So yeah. Need to peaches find and roses. Yes, it is not all peaches and roses. <laughs> <laughs> Diane, how do people connect with you if they want to reach out? There are a couple of ways. Probably the easiest way I have an Instagram page. Is that what it's called? Gosh, should I even be on there if I don't know what it's called? I don't know. Anyway. Yes, because I'm on there and I don't know what it's called either. <laughs> Um, so they can find me there at Dr. Diane Hudson, and it's just D-R-D-I-A-N-E-H-U-D-S-O-N. It's interesting to me how often people ask, how do you spell Hudson? But I guess there are multiple ways. So I think it's like the river. Yeah, that's how mine is. Yeah. Yeah. So that's a great way. Or just an email to Diane at Advanced Behavior Change will also work as well. So, okay. Yeah. And I have shared your information on Facebook a few times when I see it in the few times that I am on Facebook. And I've gotten appreciations for sharing the content that you put out there. And so out on, I don't know if you post it on Instagram and then it automatically goes to Facebook, how that all works. But for people listening, you do put out information that is whether or not your child is autistic or ADHD, it's just great information to be able to reflect upon and think about of how you are a parent and who your child is and how to interact with them. Yeah. Well, thank you. I appreciate you sharing it. And yeah, it's, there are some unique ways to go about parenting under a divergent kid, some things that you don't need to spend your time doing and other, other things that will be take a little bit longer to learn, but truth be told, like all of us parents are figuring this out along the way and, Mm -hmm. you know, it's good to have places to go. To get That's to right. Learning. And whenever somebody has a, a new child, I, I say, remember, you're not alone. Whatever is happening in your world in that moment, and you think it is absolutely hard, whatever you're thinking, mm-hmm. somebody else who is going through it or has gone through it. So yep. reach out. Yep. Yeah. Thank you, Diane. This has been Thank beautiful. You, I appreciate it. All right. Okay. See you soon. Have a good day. Bye. Bye. Thank you, everyone, who helps keep this podcast alive and going. Sandy Levy, thank you for listening. I appreciate it. You've known me many years, and you are family to me. To my wife, Laura, my boys, Lewis and William, and, of course, to Michael, who has edited and marketed every single episode of the Jackson Hole Connection. Cheers, everyone. I appreciate your time today, and I look forward to seeing you right back here for another episode of the Jackson Hole Connection.